Well, good morning. It's so good to be here with, with all of you. Uh, we know that many of you are here visiting with us today because of, of circumstances due to the storms and all the, the bad weather that we've had, power being out. And while we certainly hope that that is alleviated for you all shortly, um, we are very thankful that we have this opportunity to all be gathered together to, to study from God's Word together, to sing these songs of praises. Uh, you have been a great encouragement and uplifting to us, and I pray that as we go into God's Word together, we can, we can all be lifted up together and draw closer to Him, draw closer to what He would have us to be, uh, studying from the things that He has said in the past. We, we started a study not too long ago on a, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, looking at the first two chapters of the book of uh, lost my clicker. The first two chapters of the book of Amos. Um, if many of you all were not here for that, and if you like to sometime, those song, the, those sermons are on our website. Uh, but what we looked at was the judgment that that Amos brought to the children of Israel, and I want to revisit that a little bit this after, uh, this morning because I believe there's a message there that is very applicable uh, for us today. A message that still rings out. Uh, throughout the land today. If you remember from uh, just uh, maybe a recollection of who Amos was, he was a farmer who had left Judah and traveled up to Israel to the northern kingdom to proclaim to them this coming judgment uh, that God was sending upon them. And he begins in the first two chapters telling them about all these evil nations that, that in the land their wickedness God has seen, He has not ignored. And these, these wicked nations, even though they aren't a covenant relationship with God. They are, they are nonetheless under the authority of God and God sees them and He's going to judge them. But then He turns His attention to Judah and He says, even my, home, my homeland, the people where I come from, we are not escaping the judgment of God because of our mistreatment of His Word. And then He turns in the rest of chapter 2 and He says, now I need to speak to Israel for a while. And there was much that He had to say about Israel and they were in need for some serious repentance that needed to go on there. And Amos tells them, that, that, that this is the things that God has noticed in you, and He's going to continue to expound upon that. And I want to talk about it this morning, uh, because the things that Amos told Israel to turn away from are things that I think could be a particular warning to us today. So let's begin. I want to look in chapter 3, because I believe chapter 3 houses kind of the key point uh, that Amos makes to the children of Israel in verses 1 and 2. He says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You see, they felt like their relationship with God had somehow made them special, had somehow made them above reproach, above reproof. They looked at all the things that God had done for them. They said, God drew us out of the, the, the nation of Egypt. God brought us through the wilderness and, and gave us this great land of Canaan. He cast out the inhabitants of the land and conquered mighty peoples and mighty fortresses. And, and even in all that, they had found great success. There was a, a success in the kingdom when it was united, and now even as a divided kingdom, Israel at this time is enjoying economic and political success. But God tells them, your relationship with me shouldn't make you feel like you're above reproach. In fact, your relationship with me is the reason why this judgment and this punishment is coming on to you. If you turn down a few verses to verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod, in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria, see great tumults in her midst, and the oppressed within her. 
God says, I'm going to tell the nations of the world to come to Israel and see what I am doing here. Because Israel should have been a great example. Israel should have been setting this marvelous example of what a people who love this God, the God of heaven, the God of hosts, and what He will do for a people that are faithful to Him, a people that keep His commandments and follow Him. They should have been shining His light into the world. They should have been helping those who were helpless. They should have been honoring those who had little honor, such as the poor. But instead, they were full of themselves. They were arrogant. They were proud and puffed up. We learned in chapter 2 that Israel was guilty. They sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. It, it truly was a terrible time to be someone in debt, to be someone who owed someone something in Israel. Because if you couldn't repay your debts, you were quickly taken off into slavery. But this is coming from a people who could never repay. Who could never repay the debt that God had, had given them in bringing them from a, a, a place of, of nothing, a, a people that were not truly a people, into this mighty nation. And because they had failed then to understand this, they had failed to set the example, God says, okay, well then I will make you the example. And the Bible is full of this, this kind of imagery. Over and over again, God calls His people to be humbled or they will be humbled. To be holy or they will be made holy. To be an example or they will be made the example. And I, I think as we look through the Bible, we can see very quickly one of those is better for the people than the other. One of those is not only more comfortable, one, over the, one of those is, is much more uplifting, one of those is more edifying to be setting the example, to be humbling ourselves, to be making ourselves pure and holy rather than to have God do that through judgment. And the world around Israel, the world around them at this time, they didn't know to do what was right. This was a people that God says didn't know their right from their left, but God says, as the Lord of hosts, you are the people who are following me and you should have been setting an example, but because you have forsaken me, you're going to serve as an example to the rest of the world. And you know what? The example that they serve as, it served as an example for all these nations, but it serves as an example for us as well today. And so he continues on as, as he speaks to them. He says in chapter 4 that God is trying to get your attention because of these things. He goes on in chapter 4 talking about, about the things that are going on in the nation. He says in verse 6, There was a famine in the land. I gave you cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. They didn't, have, they didn't have bread, which is kind of a, a, a basic food group, if you, if you will think. A very, something that, that shouldn't be that hard to come by. But he says, you don't even have enough food to get your teeth dirty. There's, you have cleanliness of teeth. There's nothing to eat in the land. Then he goes on a little bit further in verse 7. He says, I withheld the rain from you. When there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water. But they were not satisfied, and yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So he goes on to say that not only was it a famine in the land, but there was a drought in the land. And that to top all this off, in verse 9, I blasted you with blight and mildew. Your gardens increased, your vineyards, your, your fig trees and your olive trees. And then I sent locusts to devour them. You have not returned to me, says the Lord. Over and over again, God is telling them, look at all the things I was trying to do to, to get your attention. Going on, even the plagues in the manner of Egypt. They dealt with pestilence and war and destruction, even on level, it seems, as with Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So many things were going on to get their attention, and yet over and over and over again, they did not return to the Lord. They did not look to where these things were coming from and look to where they had fallen. And so maybe some of the most fearsome phrases that are, that are recorded in, in Scripture, verse 12, Therefore, because of all this, I will do to you, O Israel, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. You know what that tells me? That tells me that in verses 6 through, through 11, God says, look at how terrible things are and I'm not even here yet. My wrath has not even come. I'm just trying to get your attention. But because you will not focus, you will not turn back to me, then I am coming. And you will be made the example and my judgment is falling upon you. But he also says at the beginning of chapter 4, I skipped over verses 1 through 5, because he was trying to get their attention to have them turn away from his judgment because of the sin that was going on in the land. I want to spend just a little bit of time here because I believe verses 1-5 through really truly can reflect and, and resonate in our lives today. It begins by saying He was not pleased with the worship that they were offering up. He calls out specifically in verse 1, the women of the land. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria. Now that's, I, I understand that is very tough language. That is difficult language to hear. But it was written to a tough and difficult people. People who were hard-hearted. People who were not listening to the Lord. And as he goes on to describe what they were doing there, they were making the poor's life worse. They took those who were in need and, and mistreated them. And, and all the while, while they were doing these terrible things, they were saying to their husbands, bring me more to drink. What we see here possibly is a great representation of, of the whole of Israel at this time. A people that cared only for themselves. They had successful lives of wealth, but they didn't care for those who were lesser than themselves. They only cared about what made me feel good, the luxury that I can have, what, what, what is it that I want and I need in this world. And that's true even in their worship. Come on down to verse 4 and 5 in chapter 4. He says, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. They brought their sacrifices every morning. Tied every three days. When they offered up sacrifices of thanksgiving and, and, and even the sacrifices, the, the free will God offerings, offerings they didn't have to give. And they loved to do this. I think that's what's so interesting here in verses 4-5 through five, is that when you read this, you say, man, this sounds like religious people. This sounds like people who, who love God. Look how much they love God. That They love to do these things. They loved it but it was displeasing to God. And I think we see that, the reason why, when we go back to chapter 3 and look in verse 3, when God says, how can two people walk together? How can two people walk together unless they are agreed? These people couldn't walk with God and worship God because their lives didn't agree with God. Their service didn't reflect their worship, which should have been saying, God, we love You, but over and over was saying, God, we love ourselves. We love the way we feel when we worship You. And even in chapter 8, if you flip over just a, a little bit, we'll jump ahead. Chapter 8, verses 1-6, through six, He's telling them the worship that they love really is all about them. It's not about God. He says, Therefore the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. 
And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead, many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. You see, they loved they loved the way their worship, the way their, their righteousness, their piety made them feel. But even then, they couldn't wait for these things to be over. They couldn't wait for this, this, the, the, these feasts to be over and the Sabbath to be over so they could get back to their true desires. Get back to the things that really had their attention in their life. And it's at this point, I think, that every single one of us Every single one of us that love to worship God, and I hope that everyone here does. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I hope we love to worship God, but this should make us perk up. This should get our attention. Because we know God desires worship. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verses 3-5, through 5, when He gives the, the Ten Commandments, He says, You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who, who hate me. When giving the Ten Commandments, God reveals something about worship. First, he says you should not worship or you should not bow down to any other God but Him. And it's because I think God knew. He knew people were going to worship something. They were, they, they, there's no contradictions in, in what we see in Amos and what we see in Exodus. He knew that there was going to be people that needed to worship something. They were going to have a desire to worship something. And God knew it needed to be something that was worthy of worship. And nothing deserves worship other than God, truly. But did you notice what he connected with worship in those passages? He said, you will not bow down to them and you will not serve them. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, says God desires mercy and not sacrifice. God desires knowledge more than burnt offerings. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, when, when Saul makes these, these erroneous uh, claims that I, I saved all these people because, because we were going to make an offering to the Lord, he says, Samuel responds to them, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Again, no contradictions are we seeing here. But we're seeing that God desires service and mercy and knowledge and obedience in reflection or in connection with our worship. He's drawing a vivid line here. He's connecting worship and service. And they are vastly different yet closely related. We can't have one without the other and expect to be pleasing to the Lord. And so these people love to worship God, but God displeased their worship. And so in all of this, God wants His people, He wants Israel to know judgment is coming. I, I, prepare to meet your God. But He also wants to know there is hope. He wants Israel to know this hope. And he begins by showing that in kind of a, a, a weird way, we might think, in, in our, our own minds. He starts in chapter 7 with these five visions. 
These five visions that he's going to, to eventually use to show the children of Israel that there will be hope. He begins in chapter 7 with this vision of locusts. You read about it there, verses, uh, verses 1 through 3. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings, and so it was. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. You see, he showed this vision of the locusts who destroyed all the crop after the king has got his, but the people, they have nothing. They are going to starve. They are going to die. And Amos says, oh, this is too much. Please, this is too much for Jacob. Please don't do this. And God relents. And then he gives him a second vision in, chapter four, or in verse 4. This vision of great fire. So he showed me, behold, Lord God called for a conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep. And devoured the territory. And then once again, verse 5, Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And yet again, the Lord relented concerning this. Uh, this also shall not be, said the Lord God. So twice now, God has shown Amos this vision of, of, his, of his coming wrath. And twice, Amos said, please don't do this. Please, this is, this is too much. And God has relented. But then he shows him a vision of the plumb line. Thus he showed me, verse 7, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And he said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. <clears throat> When he gives this vision of God standing on a wall made by a plumb line, holding the plumb line in his hand, he, what he tells Amos in this is I'm, I'm setting a plumb line or I'm setting a standard or I'm setting a, a constant truth. That's what a plumb line does. Any of you who have ever worked in, in construction before know you can take that plumb line and no matter what the circumstances are, it's going to be vertical. It's going to show you what truly is up and down. And so you can make your walls. And that way we don't have walls that are leaning in or leaning out. Our walls are square. God is setting up a plumb line in Israel. And He has found that Israel, the nation of Israel, is not square. And He says, no longer will I pass by them. And he has looking back to Egypt whenever He passed over the nation of Israel instead of, instead of visiting the, the wrath of God upon them then. And maybe that had served to, to build them up a little bit, puff them up a little bit. We, we are the people that God passed over. We said, I'm not passing by anymore. And you notice Amos is silent. Amos has nothing to say in regard to this vision. He can't argue with this. Because God is righteous. And His judgments are righteous. In chapter 8, he goes on to tell Amos, he says, the days of Israel are like the days of the harvest. The fruit has been picked. What is left is to, is to be destroyed. The branches, the, the withered and, and fruitless. And then chapter 9, he, he begins this, this chapter that will ultimately lead in their, in their hope with this realization that God, God is standing by or God is standing over or upon the altar. That's a fearful thought. Because the altar is where you would go to take your sacrifice for, for the forgiveness of your sins, and yet God now stands upon the altar. The, the, the person who you are seeking your forgiveness from and seeking your, your safety from 
You have to approach with that. It carries with the idea that there's no longer a hope of this sacrifice. Judgment of God is coming. He's standing right there and He's saying, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may fall on their heads. He says, I will slay them. And even those who escape will not truly get away. Frightening, frightening visions are given to Amos here. But all of that leads us to verses 11 through 15. He says, On that day I will rise up, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes who sows seeds. Uh, him who, who sows seeds. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. And I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. God promises to restore the Davidic tabernacle. That's the imagery He decides to use to bring hope to them. I will restore the tabernacle. Not the temple of Solomon. Not the temple that was, that was in the, the great city of, of, of David, but the tabernacle. Now we think back to the tabernacle. We think back of a time in the wilderness. I think back of a time of a people who are traveling, a people who are, who are nomads, who are sojourning. We think of a people who are humble, and subservient, relying upon God, trusting in Him, not puffed up, and not found in some great, great mighty kingdom. Today, God has returned and restored the tabernacle. Maybe we should say God has come and restored the tabernacle. And the early church understood that. If you want to turn over to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, they, they were seeing this happening in, in real time. And they were dealing with the coming of the Gentiles and, and trying to understand how do we, how do we handle that? What do we, what do, we do with, with these who are coming that are, that are not Jews? Do we make them uh, do the things that Moses had called for them to do? And down at Acts chapter 15 and verse 13, we have James. This is likely James, the, the brother of Jesus, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will, and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from eternity, are all his works. The church was discussing these Gentile Christians. And, and James makes this connection between the church and this very prophecy that, that we've been reading. Jesus, God the Son, came and established His kingdom, established the church, established the tabernacle of David, and we are this tabernacle today. It is a place of dwelling for the Lord. And Paul spoke in these, these same ways to the Corinthians using the, the, the temple uh, uh, views of that, saying we better not defile it. The Israelites had defiled the relationship they had with God. And we shouldn't think that somehow we're, we're above that. We shouldn't think that somehow we are, we are not able to do that same thing. 
But I want us also to think back to that last vision of God by the altar. Because as I said, this was meant, this was meant to show that, that there was no sacrifice that was going to be acceptable for Israel. They needed to repent, but there was nothing that they could offer that would wash away what they had done. And maybe if we got these visions today, we would see a vision again of God upon the altar. But in the life of Christ, it was His Son. It was His Son that was made that acceptable sacrifice. That Son that was given on our behalf, crucified on the cross for us. See, God is desires for worship in His tabernacle. And He has raised up a tabernacle that is supposed to be like the tabernacle of David. A tabernacle that is supposed to be humble. A tabernacle that is supposed to recognize that it is sojourners here. A tabernacle that is supposed to recognize that it needs to trust in God. And not like the Corinthians who seem to have this idea that we, we should be puffed up. We should, be, we should get everything that is coming to us maybe in eternity. We should have it now. God uses a lowly form to describe what will eventually become the church. But not only has He raised up a tabernacle that needs to have worship in it, He's raised up a tabernacle that He desires to serve Him. Again, these things aren't exclusive. Service and worship are mutual acts of thanks and gracious obedience to the Lord because of the amazing grace that He has shown us. So do we love to worship God? I hope that we do. I hope that runs through the, the very being of us that we love every part of our worship of the Lord. But do we do it to despise and despise the service of others? Do we do it just so we can get it out of the way? Do we do it just because we like the way it makes us feel? Because if that's so, if that's true for any one of us, we're more like physical Israel than spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel is one that would love God, that would worship God, and that would serve God. And so I think we should hear the words of this country prophet. I think we should hear the words of Amos that still call out, that, that roar from Zion, the roar of the Lord. In Amos chapter 5, verses, verse, uh, verse 5, he says, Seek God and live. Amos chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Seek the Lord and live. In Amos chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord, God of hosts, will be with you. Are you seeking the Lord today? Maybe that's the question that we should ask ourselves. Are we seeking Him today with our worship? Are we seeking Him today with our service? With every fiber of our life? Are we looking for God? If we find Him, and He can be found as He tells us, we will live. It's a continual effort that starts with us learning about Him. It's a continual effort that starts with us loving Him and with us following Him. If we can help you with that this morning in any way, I would encourage you, please let it be known right now. Make that choice and come forward as we stand and as we sing.